The latest guest in my podcast series is a true pioneer of our industry. From film to football and now women's sport, he's influenced the worlds of sport and entertainment in a number of different guises across a stellar career. In his early years, he helped grow the Disney and ESPN brand before taking on a role at Tribeca Enterprises, where he was responsible for setting up the ESPN Tribeca Film Festival. He then set his sights on sport, first with newly founded MLS club New York City FC, and now through the creation of Athletes Unlimited, a network of female sports leagues in America where the athletes really are at the heart of the operation. He is reshaping the way we think about sport and redefining what is possible. Welcome to the podcast, John Pachikoff. John, welcome. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thanks, Seb. I'm flattered by that introduction. Well, I, was, I have a, an old history lecturer at my old University of Loughborough who said, uh, we have only ever reached perfection on our CVs, but I hope I did you justice. <laughs> Very much so. Very much so. John, if you don't mind, I'm always a great one for starting at the beginning because I've always considered the quintessentially the human condition is shaped out of geography, friendships, education, family, landscapes. Uh, and your formative years are, are really interesting because if we start at the beginning, as I said up front, you started at Disney, you worked on the growth of the ESPN brand. A few years later, you played that revolutionary role I talked about in uh, Tribeca Enterprise, Tribeca uh, Film Festival. Uh, and I'm guessing that was a really interesting platform for all the things you subsequently decided to go on and do and take seriously. I mean, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I concur in the sense that, you know, all of our experiences build kind of on one another. And, you, you know, you take for what you hopefully you take what you've learned in, in prior experiences, whether they be academic or social or professional and bring them forward. And so there's no question that. You know, I had a formative experience at Disney coming out of college, uh, working in this somewhat famed uh, strategic planning department. Um, I met a tremendous number of very intelligent and strategic, uh, you know, individuals who who went on to accomplish a lot, uh, both in, in media and entertainment. And it was an exciting time to be there in the mid 90s. 1996 was an incredibly exciting time. They had just bought ABC at Disney. And I was part of a team that was really thinking about how to shape the future of ESPN. I, I mean, I, as a very young kid coming out of college, that was an incredible seat to be in. John, where were you, John, where were you at college? I went to Harvard, under, Harvard undergrad, and I was very close to coming out of college and going and working on Wall Street. And it happened to be that Disney and the strategic planning team came to came to campus to recruit. And out of nowhere, in, in a very few you know few weeks, my sights went from Wall Street all of a sudden to you know moving to California and taking a job. And it, like I said, it was an incredible experience. I learned from great people. Um, and when I went back after Disney to graduate school, I came out and I actually spent a few years in the private equity industry um, and decided very quickly that I really wanted to be back in an operating organization, an operating company. And it was about that time that um, Tribeca Film Festival and Tribeca Enterprises, you know, came onto my radar and um, through a series of, of relationships and events and actually a private equity transaction I looked at in the movie theater business that got me started to think about Tribeca and the brand and the festival and live events. And um, this was the early 2000s and live events and festivals weren't as popular as they've become over, over the years, the last 20 years. So um, it was an exciting moment to join Tribeca and uh, help shape 
what turned out to be an 11 year journey that was incredibly exciting in, in building what I think has now become a world-class culture institution. So Wall Street's loss was ultimately the film world, uh, Disney, ESPN, and latterly, of course, sports win. I, absolutely. Uh, I think my win as well, personally, and I think it also um, has, has let me do, I think, a lot of, of good, um, in the case of Tribeca, for, for you know, different voices in the film industry that weren't getting as much attention, documentary filmmakers, um, voices from around the world, and then uh, in sport, which I really believe has the true power to impact people for, for, for the better. And so it's been an amazing, it was an amazing twist of fate and, and, and terrific for me for the last 20 years. Okay, so you went on to become president uh, of Major League Soccer Team New York uh, City FC. Now, I know New York City FC because, of course, we lost Frank Lampard to Manchester City, who then ended up being secured on loan to New York uh, City Football Club. So most Chelsea fans, it was the second result that we looked for uh, at the end of every uh, uh, at the end of every week. We were not just sort of following Chelsea, but we were following the fortunes of Frank Lampard, and that went really well until he went back to Manchester City and scored a winning goal against us. Uh, Stanford Bridge. I, I, I'm, we're dealing with that. I'm getting counted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At least you've gotten beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> but but you still sit on the board there, and I think I'm right in saying that um, you won the cup last year. I mean, that must have been a huge, huge and proud moment. It was. I mean, um, again, like you said, opportunities lead to one another. Relationships lead to one another. And so back again in 2015, I was at Tribeca. I decided that I was going to ready for my next move and um, through some relationships I had built there on the board at Tribeca and then um, through really the success I'd had at Tribeca for 11 years building what was you know become a cultural institution and one that had significant media and entertainment ties and um, the the team at New York City FC and at City Football Group identified me as as someone who could potentially take the lead I had no background in in, in football um, I think it was a courageous choice on their part. I hope it was a good one. And um, I took the took the helm, um, so to speak, at an amazing time. Uh, Patrick Vieira was joining yeah. as manager. And as you mentioned, Frank Lampard and Andrea Pirlo and David Villa and a whole host of other great, great players were on the team. And uh, I certainly, uh, I was new to the sport and certainly to, to, to be working alongside, you know, a team like that was... Uh, was was incredible. So it was great. And I, I will say that I'm very proud to still be on the board. I'm very proud of the team. They've done an amazing job. Uh, they obviously won the cup last year. I'm proud to be on the board there. It was after my tenure as, as president, so I can't take too much credit for it at all, or any credit, I should say. Yeah, but no, all, all football chairmen have to take credit for everything. It's part, it's, <laughs> it's the rule of the road, John, the rule of the road. Well, uh, I'll do, do you actually have, do you actually support an English club? Do you watch English soccer? No, you know, I don't, and I'm not a longtime football fan at all. And and I was very frank about that. Um, and I think that was something that, you know, I give Moran Soriano and the team at City Football Group a lot, in tremendous credit. They're incredibly innovative, disruptive thinkers. I really think, and I, I really give them a huge amount of credit for the shape of, of global football today. I mean, you know, Ferran took the helm there uh, back in the mid-2000s. You know, I joined in, in, in 2015. And Honestly, when I joined, and this sounds strange, but most people, I really believe if you look back to where Man City was at that time and 
city football board, it, it was nowhere near what it is as an organization today. I mean, yeah, sure. they've made so much progress over a short period of time. Um, and so I wasn't supporting a, a football team, but Ferran said, before you go and take the helm at NYCFC, I want you to come to, to Manchester and live here for a few months and really learn the ropes and, and get a chance to, to understand you know, football in England and football in Europe. And that was a, a really great decision on his part. And um, I, I really benefited a tremendous Did amount. you find some of those learnings transferable skills or were the leagues very different? Absolutely transferable. I mean, I think, I think first and foremost, you know, building relationships and having a time, it, it's a luxury, um, but I think it, it actually is probably good advice to anyone, right? Which is that when you take a, a new role, I think one of the first things really you, you should be doing is listening, meeting as many people and really coming to understand the business and understand the industry as best you can. And certainly for somebody like myself who was coming from outside football, what those few months allowed me to do was um, one, certainly be sitting close to people like Thron and others who, who know the sport so well and just learn through osmosis, right? Um, so I was able to do that. Um, and then two, um, it certainly gave me a little bit of credibility when I came back. It was only a few months, but nonetheless, it was, it was still helpful. Uh, and then third, just think broadly. Think broadly about the context of, of, of the sport. Um, it's the most global of all sports. Um, and certainly if you're, I think for most young Americans, I'll say, I think this is fair to say, you know, uh, it probably applies elsewhere as well. You know, we can even have, uh, you know, provincial ideas of understanding sport in the context of, you know, the NBA and the NFL and Major League Baseball. And you think you know everything about sport because you've grown up around those leagues. But here was an entire world to learn about um, of football in other countries. And so I hope it, I, I definitely brought back experiences um, to MLS and NYCFC that, that were informed by my time there. Uh, John, you mentioned some of the household names, both in British and, and European soccer, that ended up at uh, uh, NYFC. And really, I mean, you know, they were absolute stadium fillers. Uh, and you did start off with some really big signatures, but then you started to move towards some of the lesser known players. Was that a deliberate shift? And, and, and I'm guessing, was it also part of the way that you could see the MLS developing? I think it was. I mean, I think that, um, again, every league, every organization goes through transformations. There are things that are right and right decisions at one point in time that don't make any sense you know, a few years later. Um, and so I can't take credit for shaping, you know, the team. Quite frankly, at any point in time I was there, I'll be honest, as, as president of the club, my, my focus was really on business operations, but I was involved in big decisions about player signings and others and thinking about them through the business lens. And I think those are very intentional decisions about what it would take to make noise, to get attention in, in, in the new US and the New York market. I think a lot of that proved, uh, proved to be true. Um, but absolutely, if you look today at the MLS, it's a very different league than it was back, you know, five years ago. There's no question it's transformed. I mean, um, I was just looking recently at kind of the transfer, some of the transfer information recently. And if you look, you know, nine of the biggest, you know, nine of the top 10 transfers in MLS history have happened in the last three years. You know, there, there is now a very clear, robust development pipeline that is coming up in the United States. And one of the biggest things you're seeing happen in the MLS is the investment in um, lower divisions and in academies and just actually very recently this you know MLS launched this past week of their of their second division so um, there's no question that the focus here and I think as we all know from global football you know the transfer market and rights to players is a big part of the financial equation it's very unfamiliar to most 
you know, American sports fans to even understand the concept of what that means. But we all know in football that that is a huge part of the business plan. So if you're writing a business plan for a football team, not only do you need the traditional sponsorship and television rights, but I think figuring out, you know, your player, your player strategy is a, is a huge part to creating a, a successful team. It, 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 you make an interesting point because actually, if you if you look at this in com, in comparison with the Premier League, Premier League in a way has gone through exactly the same the same transition. You know, at, at the beginning it was sort of tentatively trying to figure out how it was going to function. Then big money came in, partly through Sky and partly through some quite high profile owners. But actually, those owners quite quickly realised that actually investing in the academy uh, to make it a, a sensible and, 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 and hopefully profitable standalone business was, was one of the key elements. But I, I'm interested because if you look at the MLS at the moment, you've got discussions taking place around, I mean, they've raged on for some time about uh, you know, amalgamating uh, with the, the Mexican League. You've got the, a World Cup uh, coming in 2026, which I guess is a, an amazing bridgehead to other things. You, I've seen various reports talking about, um, you know, soccer becoming, football becoming the, the, the number three favourite US sport, leapfrogging uh, uh, baseball. I guess you would see this as quite an, in, an important inflection point uh, in the life of the MLS. Yeah, I mean, I'm not so sure anymore that we're talking about Radical inflection points. I think 2026 and the World Cup has been pointed to, to one of those. And um, I guess there's there's probably some significant truth to that. But I just think that the, the trajectory continues to be this steady, steady climb um, where you're seeing a lot of the, 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 the right indicators all point in the same direction, which is that this sport, you know, is a juggernaut. I, I do fundamentally believe that all sport is becoming more global. And so while you look within the borders, I think that I mean, you can't understand the U.S. soccer landscape without understanding the role that international clubs have in the United States as well. So I don't I don't think anyone can just think purely in the context of MLS. I mean, when, when MLS, you know, I know a lot of studies that I was, you know, made aware of. And certainly when we were thinking about strategic discussions, one of the things you think about in the United States. But by the way, I think that happens now in the rest of the world is. Can we any? I don't think any of us can really look at the context of sport purely in the, the realm of who are the domestic teams competing yeah. at the time. Now, you know, I'd argue sport in the UK, look how, look how the NFL or the NBA is thinking about global opportunities. And I think we're all realizing that at some level, we're competitors or, or collaborators, you know, wherever, wherever, and regardless of borders, I should say. Okay, let, let's move on to something that I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by. It's deep in my DNA. You know, I'm, I've had roles in sport for a long time. I've helped organise the games. I'm president of a, of a, well, the number one Olympic sport. And I know from, you know, time immemorial that actually the only thing that really matters is being athlete-focused, athlete-centric. They are, you know... It is what makes your sport what it is, and actually, when you lose sight of that, that's often when other, you know, challenges start coming in. So, athletes unlimited for me is not just about restructuring and rethinking simply women's sport. 
I'm guessing you would see that as a template for the way professional sport across the board can be organized. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And so um, if I take you back to kind of the origins of Athletes Unlimited and what we're doing in professional sports, um, started really while I was at NYCFC. I, I observed at the time what I thought was a real opportunity in women's professional soccer and led me to think about the opportunity more broadly in women's sports. And at that time, as I was exploring, potentially investing and getting more involved in the National Women's Soccer League or the WNBA, I connected with um, someone I'd known for a while, Jonathan Soros, who'd been an investor in, in Tribeca Enterprises. And we started to talk about the opportunity. And it was really through those conversations and a lot of Jonathan's ideas where we started to say, well, what could you do? Where is sports heading? What are some of the important trends and developments over the next 10, 20 years? And one of those big aspects was really the increasing empowerment of athletes and how to make them more central. And you're absolutely right that the ideas um, that we've put forth, we believe apply, whether it be in women, women's sports or men's sports equally. Yeah, uh, look, uh, the reality for me, even in event management, is if you put the athletes at the centre of everything, you're going to get 80% by implication, you're going to get 80% of the project management right. Because, you know, if you're thinking about the athletes, you can't build a village that's substandard, you can't build a transport system that's going to unravel within the minutes of an opening ceremony. You've got to have, you know, your, your warm-up and your, your training and your competition venues all, all properly integrated. So I'm interested, for those that are listening to this that may not be that familiar with Athletes Unlimited, give me the quick elevator pitch around what you think is, is so radically different here uh, and some of the innovative, innovative approaches that you've taken. So Athletes Unlimited is a network of professional women's sports leagues that all operate under the same model. Each league, and we currently operate in four different sports, but each league takes place over a five-week season in one city. And in each sport, we bring together the best athletes in the world, four teams worth of athletes. Um, we recently completed our basketball season in Las Vegas. We had 44 of the best basketball players in the world come to Las Vegas. They were there for five weeks. And what's so unique about the, the competitive model is that at the beginning of the season, four captains are selected. They draft their teams for the week. They practice and then they play against the other three teams and players get points based on how well they do on their team and how well they do individually. That point system uh, basically ends up in a leaderboard like you would have in auto racing or golf and the players move up and down that leaderboard based on how well their team does and how well they do. At the end of the first week, top four players on the leaderboard become captains and they redraft their teams. The teams all shuffle around and you do the exact same thing for five weeks and at the end of week five, whoever's at the top of the leaderboard is the champion. Um, what's incredible about that is that, first of all, it's this five-week intense season. There are points on the line. As we say, every moment counts. Um, and we put the players in charge. The captains make all of the decisions, really, for the team that week. They've got to figure out how to develop the king chemistry, work through any management issues. And we give them a lot of support through trainers, facilitators, and others. But it's really the athletes who are in charge. And so we really believe that that um, is leaning into a significant trend in sport, which is really the primacy of the individual athlete in, in fandom going forward. Um, and that increasingly fans are following their favorite athlete. Um, certainly fans are gonna have EPL teams they love or major league baseball teams or NFL teams they love. But if you're starting a league today, we really believe that 
that, that the real power of connectivity is with is with the individual athlete. And so that's what Athletes Unlimited is about. We operate now in four sports. I mentioned basketball. We operate in softball, lacrosse, and volleyball. Each place takes place in a different city at a different time of the year. Um, and games are nationally and globally broadcast. We have great partners like Nike and Gatorade and Aspiration and Geico and a whole host of others. Um, and yeah, you know, so far so good. It's working incredibly well. And, and you've been and you've been you've been not worried or, or, or challenged by innovation and formats. I know in basketball you've got shorter formats and shorter seasons in, in softball. Uh, you you've really gone out on a limb for fan engagement here as well, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the things we noticed early on, and actually softball was the first sport we, we started with. Um, we, we, one of our, because, because we came up with the idea of Athletes Unlimited, as I mentioned, I thought about soccer, we thought about basketball, but at that time, we actually thought that dynamics in both those sports weren't right for, for what we were trying to do. And we ended up with softball, where there was a lot of receptivity, and it's a sport that, you know, to global listeners, they might not have as much of an appreciation. But if you live in the United States, um, softball is a very significant sport at a commercial uh, level, at the, at the college level in the United States. ESPN broadcasts 1,500 games a year. Um, there were 2 million people that tuned in uh, last year for the College World Series, um, you know, on the women's side. And so softball had a, has a long history there. And what we realized was there was a real opportunity at the professional level and that fans would follow the players that they had followed through their college career or through their national team career uh, into the professional ranks. And so that was the, the commercial observation. And we thought that if we just went and, started a league from scratch and created teams with names that we made up, you'd be, you'd be the 13th professional team in the New York city market. And that just didn't sound as compelling to us than really leaning into uh, the brand equity that the individual players had built up throughout their careers. And what plans do you have in, in tow to continue that growth, particularly around women's sport, because that's something that, you know, I, I know from my own experiences, needs permanent tending. It's it's not something that you, you know, you, I, I guess you don't remotely feel you've even touched the beginning of the journey here. Correct. That's absolutely right. So we started, we, we announced in March of 2020. Um, so we're literally just two years old as an organization. Um, we've now conducted um, two softball season in 2020 and 2021. We've our, we're, in the, we're in the middle of our second volleyball season, indoor pro volleyball, which is a huge sport around the world. We're the first pro league here in the United States um, in indoor volleyball. We're now in the middle of our second season in volleyball. We've conducted one lacrosse season, which our second one will be coming up this summer. And we've conducted one basketball season. So we're in each of these sports and we are committed to them. Softball as the first um, probably already has presented one blueprint for, for expansion and growth, which is this summer, in addition to the five-week season that we'll run in Chicago, which we're now calling our championship season, we're launching a new product, which is a two-week season that we're calling AUX. And AUX will be a two-week version of this format that I just discussed, and it'll take place in San Diego. And I think if you think about one of the ways we could potentially expand going forward is you could imagine, you know, just like in golf or in tennis um, or auto racing where there's a circuit, you could imagine the Athletes Unlimited circuit existing where the five-week season happens in Chicago every year, but we've got two-week versions of our, of our format taking place in, you know, Mexico City or London or, 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 or New York or 
Miami and therefore creating a, a very different professional experience, but one that could be could be terrific. It could bring the excitement of a you know a compact kind of tournament style uh, experience to different cities around the world. Um, and so that's one model for expansion. Um, certainly thinking about other sports, um, adding sports to the network. It, 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 again, we are the only sports organization outside of you know the Olympics or the NCAA model here that where we operate across sport. I mean, I think it's it's fascinating when you think about it, right? The NBA has gone deep in basketball, and EPL has you know or, or so- soccer, MLS has 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 depth in its you know in its ranks, but but there are no very there are no pro sports organizations that really operate across sport. We're the only ones, and so I think that gives us a lot of power and a unique proposition because we're seeing fans come in as fans of volleyball who stick around and say, I love what Athletes Unlimited is about. I love the values. I love the presentation. I love the media strategy. I like the competitive format. Hey, I'll watch your basketball season, even though I may not have been a basketball fan before. And we're seeing that start to work. One of the other things we're seeing, Seb, which I'll mention, and I'd love your reaction to this, is we're also at the athlete level seeing something very unique happen, which is what we found, and we didn't realize this initially, is that most of the athletes, when they've entered the softball league or the will say to us, you know what? I haven't really ever spent a lot of time with athletes outside of my sport. And so we found ways to bring those athletes together and develop relationships. And the fans love that content. They love seeing athletes, you know, cross fertilizing. And and that's been, it's been great for the athletes and it's also been great for the fans. So that's one of the really unique aspects that we're trying to build on. So we want to keep adding sports to this network. Look, John, the next issue I'm going to raise you and I could probably fill five podcasts discussing it, but uh, I know from experience and, and you will from your experiences with Athletes Unlimited, particularly around trying to drive more interest into to women's sport, one of the most challenging groups to corral into sport and sports participation are, are, are young women. Now, there are cultural, societal, maybe peer uh, pressures uh, on that. What I'm interested in, have you seen or have you begun to see uh, an extrapolation from what you've been doing with uh, Athletes uh, Unlimited and an increase in participation levels more generally across female sport? Or is it is it a little early to be able to detect that trend? It, it, it's too early and I, and I, and I don't want to I wouldn't want to take any credit for it, even if, if even if the participant rate tough takes up. I, I think we're still still too early. I think the the, the one thing I'll say is that um, there's a long way to go. There's a lot of issues in all of sport, as we know, and in women's sport in particular. There are a lot of challenges. But you know, this year we celebrate the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Um, it, you know, the reality is that the last 50 years has been significant growth in you know and women's sports in the United States. Um, there is a lot of participation. I think what happens and what people see is that there's a lot of participation at young ages and then and there's a big fall off. Um, I do hope that, and I do believe that it is important for there to be a robust professional set of opportunities for, for, for women. Um, and I do think that the presence, I think of college scholarships has helped continue you know, it has helped participation at younger levels. But then when you, when you get to college, I think that the concept that, you know, for many of the athletes, it ends at college has yeah. also been a deterrent. And so I think that the fact that we can present professional opportunities, add to the professional set of opportunities in some sports where they haven't existed before, I think is really exciting. And I think that I do believe has a spillover effect. 
um, you know, the quote, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And, and I think the reality of not only just conducting our league, but the fact that in each of our sport, we've had games nationally and internationally televised on networks like ESPN and Fox and CBS. And um, like I said, our robust social media presence, which has been so important, all the storytelling we're doing. I hope that that has an impact um, by having it on television, by people being able to see it, by having it out on social, I think that really does filter down to, to younger people. Okay, this is where a little bit of uh, healthy and helpful research always pays off because I read in a New Yorker feature on you. Yeah, a New Yorker feature. That's, that's in itself, that's a pretty good benchmark. Uh, that whilst you were at uh, New York uh, uh, City Football Club, you, you actually decided against setting up um, a sister team in the National Women's Soccer League. But the thinking that took place around that triggered in you a realisation, recognition that actually not just uh, soccer, but so many other female sports were undervalued. Had you sensed that uh, before that discussion or was it really triggered by the opportunity that you decided to spurn at that moment? Absolutely. I, I honestly had not spent any time thinking about okay, it. Okay, that's interesting. So it goes back, you know, I think that goes back to maybe 2016 when the first time it kind of came around, the, the National Women's Soccer League was operating. Honestly, was not very well funded, was not getting a lot of attention, um, had had you know, soccer in the United States on the women's side, had had a couple of leagues that had come and gone before it. Um, but even when, uh, you know, 2018 rolled around, I started to really seriously think about what I was going to do next after NYCFC and thought more about it. I will tell you, um, I had this idea. Um, it's a little dangerous, right? When you, you have this idea and you believe in it, but I, it was very hard to find others who would support the idea. And I'm very pleased to say that today, uh, including this morning, you know, I, I actually just got a call from someone interested in investing in, in women's sport who I remember from three years ago saying to me, you know, this doesn't make any sense. This isn't, you know, this, I don't see the opportunity. This is going to be too hard. Um, so, what, what, what do you think was the historic reticence to that? Oh, such a great question. Well, um, listen, I, I, think, I think the overall sports landscape and sports investment landscape has changed dramatically in three years. You know, look at the appreciation and enterprise values of teams across, the, you know, across every sport, effectively. Um, and so I don't think that the, the landscape was the same three years ago. And I will also say that soccer, in particular in the United States, you know, there was a lot more skepticism around MLS and just soccer as a sport three years ago. Now it's almost four years ago um, in the United States than there is today, where it's been widely accepted that, you know, it's here to stay and it's on a trajectory. So I think that was, was, was one of the big factors. And I would say that was probably, probably a, a, a dominant factor. I mean, you had the statistic, you had the results from the Women's World Cup, you knew that there were audiences there. Um, but again, I think the overall landscape for sports team ownership, league ownership has significantly uh, improved. And there's been a tremendous amount of you know, increased interest across the board. And then in women's sport, I think soccer and its kind of growing acceptance has really lifted all those boats. Uh, and then society's changed. And, and again, I think um, as, as you and I both know, and you better than I, like, um, you know, sports and society are, inter, are, 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 are interwoven uh, inextricably, right? And so I think the world's changed in terms of the perception of 
um, equality and the role of women and the opportunities that should be presented to women. And I think that um, people understand that that's not, that's not just about philanthropy or giving back. That's, that's about not only doing the right thing, but it's about business opportunity as well. Do you think there's an element also that um, 85% of discretionary spend uh, in the average household is actually being determined by uh, a woman. Now, is that something that has impacted on your ability to go out and sell to, to the leads, to the concept of that? And I guess also, given uh, Gen Z uh, has also got a growing uh, purchasing power alongside that, these are two quite powerful motors, aren't they? Yeah, I, I'm going to say that I think the, la- the the second is more important, and I'll, and I'll I want to elaborate why. So, first of all, I think 85% of purchasing power. I haven't looked back, but I, my guess is that number has been the same for for 10 years or 15 years. So, so, so I don't think that's changed. What what I and I also think another big reality of women's sport, which I don't think can be overlooked, is that men make up a very big portion of the fans of women's sport, and they and they will continue to make up a big portion of it. And so why I say the Gen Z, you know, dynamics are so much more important is that it's the changing perception of what it means to be a sports fan. It's the pers- changing perception of the legitimacy of women's professional sports. It's, it's dismantling some of the true barriers and, and, and restrictions that existed that made it hard to be a fan of women's sport. So it, what it takes is a lot of collective small actions um, that may not seem very big at the time to build up to the fact that, you know what, if I'm a sports fan, I better be able to talk about what's happening in the Women's World Cup. And, and I better be able to talk about what's going on in Athletes Unlimited Volleyball. Or I better be able to talk about who's leading, you know, right now in, in the NCAA Women's College Basketball Tournament. That's part of the dialogue of what it is to be a sports fan. And that to me is the bigger change. It's the bigger change in Gen Z. It's the bigger change in, you know, perceptions. And then it's the reality that as, as we grow, as there's more and more games on television, as there's more and more coverage of these sports, sports fans want to engage in them because as we all know, sports fans want to consume sport all the time, everywhere. And uh, that's both men and women. Well, I've spent a lot of time in Australia. If you said to me 10, 15 years ago that Channel 7 would be getting the numbers they've been getting on uh, women's AFL, uh, you know, I'd have taken... I'd have taken good odds on that. And it, it is, it's a, it's a phenomenon that, that surrounds us. I had, as you probably know, I had Billie Jean King. Uh, she actually was your predecessor on this podcast series. So, John, you're in good company. And we had a fascinating discussion um, about gender equity, obviously, and her tireless campaign, particularly uh, around equal uh, pay or equal prize money in tennis. I have to declare an interest here because it's one of those debates, mercifully, we've never had in track and field because athletics is absolutely prize money neutral. If you win a world championships and you use Usain Bolt, you win exactly the same amount as Elaine Thompson yeah, will do if she you know, wins in Oregon in a, in a few weeks' time in our own uh, world championships. And I guess... This is a debate that still rages today. Uh, I'm, I'm sad that it does because it, 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 you know, we've still got some way to go. I mean, and I'm conscious that there's still a high profile 
um, debate or a lawsuit going on between uh, US women's national soccer team and the US uh, soccer. Uh, but it's an issue that affects every sport. And do you see this being a discussion we're still going to be having if we're doing a podcast in 10 years' time? Um, I don't know how to answer that last question. I certainly hope not. I, I, you know, the way I try to think about it is in slightly more micro decisions as opposed to the macro question. And, and that is to, um, you know, work every day, building the, the commercial opportunity. Um, I, I do believe that um, there's been a lot of bias and, and failure on the part of a lot of the commercial actors in, in, in sport to recognize the commercial opportunity and the, and the fan interest. So I am not someone who believes that it's just, you know, straight up a fair, a fair uh, landscape or even landscape on which women's sports can compete with men. I think they've gotten much, much muscle, less than they've deserved. There's a lot of statistics out there about how little coverage there is in, in the media and the press. Um, and I think that we've proven, and I've been able to see certainly over the last three years that I've been in this, you know, every day, you, you know, the numbers are there. There's just no question. The viewership is there. The fandom is there. Um, and the, the money still, um, you know, lags behind. So I'm a believer that if we keep doing what we're doing um, and keep doing the right thing from both a commercial perspective and then, and then also from kind of an equity perspective, that we're going to be able to make a lot of progress. And I think there's a lot of progress being made every day. I will say, and I'd be remiss if I didn't, first of all, I'm honored that many wear, not only in your company, but in, but in Billie Jean King's company. And of course, I mean, she, she uh, I went and I encourage everyone to read her autobiography all in, which I read uh, when it came out and talked about it a lot. But It's a sensational book. It's a sensational book. It's an essential book. And, and what it also just reminds you, and I think this is one of the, one of the messages to anybody who's, you know, thinking about setting out their career and, you know, everyone always says you can learn from history and you have to. And it's so much of what she went through, you know, 50 years ago um, is still playing out today. And if you don't understand what she went through and what she did, and both as a, both as a player, of course, as a leader, but also as an entrepreneur, she's an amazing entrepreneur. And, and uh, I've tried to learn a lot from what she's done and truthfully herself and Alana Kloss have been really helpful supporters of Athletes Unlimited ever since we support. I'm trying, I'm trying hard not to be a name dropper here on my podcast series, but I know also that you've worked quite closely with another one of my favorites, a uh, great friend of mine, Angela Ruggiero. Um, it, and you worked closely with her when you were formulating your plans for uh, Athletes Unlimited, particularly around fan engagement. Um, and she, she had the innovation lab, and I know there was a lot of you know, cross-fertilization there, particularly around, you know, the athlete, individual stats, technical innovation, all, all that, all the stuff that really captures and makes salient the, uh, the audiences, particularly young audiences. Fan engagement, absolutely essential, I guess, in growing sport here. Yeah, I mean, if, if, I, if I had to say over the, you know, again, over the last uh, close to four years that I've been spending every day kind of in the women's sports world, I really believe over that period of time, Angela and her partners at Sports Innovation Lab have done as much or more than anyone to help really propel um, women's sport, certainly in the United States. Um, and um, there, there, there are two big parts of that. One is that um, they came out with this seminal report called the Fluid Fan Report, which was a huge part of the that went into our thinking of Athletes Unlimited. And the Fluid Fan Report talked about changing behavior of fandom. It talked about the 
the role that following individual athletes was playing. It talked about the importance of values. It talked about the multimedia, multi-platform consumption patterns. And that was a lot of what Jonathan and I were thinking already. And when we met Angela again back in 2018 and 19, started those conversations, it was incredibly helpful to have someone with her background and expertise and Josh Walker, her partner in their organization, kind of thinking about things the same way. That means a lot, right? You, you know, you say the same thing or you, it's great to have a partner like Jonathan because we could talk, but getting that validation means a lot. And Angela was an incredibly important part of that. But even more recently, um, the report that they've done on called the Fan Project that really tries to put data behind the opportunity in women's pro sports has been transformational, incredibly impactful, and and impacting the thinking of commercial partners and broadcast partners and others to see the opportunity. And um, so I think that hard work they've done to kind of you know run the numbers, so to speak, has really been impactful. And um, you know, Andrew's been a great advisor to us, and incredibly, incredibly. Uh, I'm guessing there's a balance here, though, isn't there? Because fan engagement, we've seen it in, in Formula E with, with fan boost. We've seen it with uh, fan tokens. We've, there's an element of fan control football uh, in the US. I guess, I guess there's a balance here, isn't there? Because you want fan engagement, but you also want to maintain the integrity of the sport and not get that out of kilter. Absolutely. So, you know, um, our, our focus has been on getting the athletes involved and putting athletes in the driver's seat. Uh, and that is quite frankly, relative to owners and coaches and general managers, where I believe historically, a lot of the power, certainly in team sports has, has rested. So for us, that's been the biggest transformation. You're absolutely right that in terms of giving fans more control, um, we've given the fans the ability to vote on, on uh, MVPs of the game. And those votes have to contribute to the, to the scoring system in a small way. Obviously, you've seen that trend go much deeper in some other instances where fans are getting more and more control. Uh, I think that I would say a couple of things. I mean, one, um, we're all, you know, a lot of experimentation goes, goes forward. Some will stick, some won't stick. I don't know how far and how much that will stick. What I do know, though, is you have to give fans um, a way to engage. Um, obviously, sports betting is a huge piece of it. Fantasy sports is a huge piece of it. Uh, like we said, voting and participation decision making is a huge part of um, of what I think is is the model for fan behavior. Um, but I think we all know that fan behavior is constantly changing. There are clearly less people watching full games. The ability to consume highlights, the ability to edit the content, have it where you want when you want. And so, if you're not responding to that, you know, I don't know that you can really be consider yourself in the sports world today because that is that is where the world is and where it's heading. And I'm a big, big believer in that. As for the, the fans, you know, calling all the plays, making all the decisions, right now I'm more focused on giving the athletes control. I think they uh, need the control. They need more power in their hands. And I think that's the key and the biggest opportunity that exists today. John, you just made the point a few moments ago that some things stick, some things maybe don't stick quite as well. Some things may not stick at all, but... Let me say that the philosophy that you brought, not just to sport, but to everything you've done, I think is a philosophy that's here to stay because it's values driven. And if you've got a values driven project, then, you know, as Abraham Lincoln once famously said, you know, with public sentiment, uh, nothing can fail without it. Nothing will succeed. So more power to your elbow. And John, thank you very, very much for being on the podcast today. It's been fascinating and very revealing. 
thank you so much for having me. Great pleasure. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales and Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSM 